0: In hobbyism, like, one thing that happens is that um, it's more fun to engage in politics where we're in our bubbles and we don't interact with anyone we actually need to convince of anything. And if we don't need to convince anyone of anything, then the way we kind of make most fun of this is by having these kind of us-versus-them teams, like, my side is great, the other
1: side is terrible. My side is smart, the other side is stupid. G'day, and welcome to The Good Life. Andrew Lee in conversation a podcast about living a happier, healthier, and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love, and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting, and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast... Let your friends know, so they can share the insights. Now, let's dive in to today's conversation. For over 100 episodes, I've described this as a politics-free podcast. I've steered guests away from partisan issues and policy topics, the ones that occupy my job as a Member of Parliament. But then this new book came along, that maybe you want to break that rule. The book's called Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action and Make Real Change. And it's written by 36-year-old Eitan Hirsch, an associate professor of politics at Tufts University. It's provocative and insightful. I found myself discussing it in all kinds of places, most recently on a phone hookup with climate change activists. Eitan, thanks for joining me on the Good Life podcast and for prompting me to break my no politics rule today.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you for having me.
1: So I love this book, but I confess I didn't love the title. I think you should have called it Why Hobbyists Are Ruining Politics, because really it's a it's a condemnation of political hobbyists and a call to true activism and volunteering. Um, so let's get started. Tell us what a political hobbyist is.
0: So a political hobbyist is someone who engages in politics a lot. That is, they spend a lot of time uh, thinking about politics, worrying about politics, But all the ways they do politics are really for themselves, for their intellectual stimulation, for their kind of emotional needs. Um, They are the people who obsessively follow the news, maybe take a, a token action like signing an online petition, worry a lot, know a lot of facts. But actually none of their time amounts to building power for the things that they care about.
1: You talk about the extraordinary amount of time some of these people are spending. Uh, You've got the statistic that a third of Americans are spending more than two hours a day on politics, and, and almost none of that seems to be volunteering.
0: That's right. You know, that number is actually not shocking if you think about the amount of time Americans spend, like watching TV in a typical day. It's hours, you know, and if you add up all the time that you are reading, you're toggling over to Facebook or Twitter, you're listening to a podcast you're talking about things at your table. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it, you know, it's hard to estimate these things precisely, but I think uh, a lot of Americans are spending an, an obsessive amount of time on politics,
1: you know, just as they spend on other things like sports. And you're being deliberately provocative and calling it a hobby, right? Because I think a lot of these people would regard themselves as being politically engaged and doing their civic duty by keeping up with the twists and turns of the news.
0: Yes, I think actually both sides of the equation here, the term hobbyism and the term power, mo- both make people feel uncomfortable for different reasons. And <laughs> the hobbyism makes people feel uncomfortable because that's right. If you really care deeply about the state of the world, the state of your country, of your state, then being labeled a hobbyist feels like it's you know demeaning of those uh, real feelings you have. And so the point of the book is to meet people where they are in that kind of hobbyist mentality and say like, are you really channeling your energy effectively? Um, you know, are, are your values showing through in your actions or not? And if they're not, then, you know, the book's designed to, to provide some alternative ideas
1: you're a Red Sox fan and you draw this lovely sports analogy about uh, uh, being in Fenway Park with people shouting, uh, Yankees suck, uh, and and how that sort of feels like a lot of the way we conduct politics. Uh, Tell us about how politics has become like uh, like sports and why that's a problem.
0: Yeah, so... um you know, Fenway Park is right near my house. When the Red Sox are playing, it actually doesn't even matter who they're playing. Sometimes we shout Yankees suck when, uh, when we're playing Los Angeles. But certainly <laughs> whenever the Red Sox are playing the Yankees, we say Yankees suck. And, you know, what, I find myself in a stadium like Fenway Park with uh, thousands of other people and everyone's shouting this and it's it's sort of a joke right like we don't really mean it i don't use the word suck in any other realm of my life <laughs> other than <laughs> at fenway park to say the yankees suck and, and i and i say it there but of course like i don't mean it like i don't not like the players i have family members from new york who like the yankees like it's it's a, it's a, it's a game and i want people to kind of think about when is politics like that for them and when is it really something deeper when are the stakes actually low and that's why they engage in something that feels more like a frivolous hobby and when are they high are they so high that they would just never they would never behave that way um and in hobbyism like one thing that happens is that um it's more fun to engage in politics where we're in our bubbles and we don't interact with anyone we actually need to convince of anything. And if we don't need to convince anyone of anything, then the way we kind of make most fun of this is by having these kind of us versus them teams. Like my side is great, the other side is terrible. My side is smart, the other side is stupid. Um, But if you're actually trying to build power, again, that's like trying to convince someone of something, you can't act like that. Um, And so you don't. Um, and, and that's why I think that the, the hobbyism politics, the kind of things that we do online, the way that we would talk about people who we don't actually have to interact with, just feels so different than how political organizers, polit- politicians who are working to bridge divides, um, how they behave.
1: Your book's a beautiful blend of uh, political science research, some uh, surveys you've conducted but also these really moving profiles of activists. Uh, And I guess my favorite is 99-year-old Nark Vioski, your uh, uh, Boston activist. Tell us about Nark and and what what he does.
0: Yeah, thanks for saying that, because he's my favorite too. Uh, And I I would say, by the way, I I just have to preface this by saying, um, based on what you said at the beginning of our conversation, which is that it can feel like a bummer, actually, for people to think about their own political engagement amounting to nothing more than a hobby. And um, and the book is not a bummer though, because I think of these stories of, of people who are doing the alternative. Um, there's a big focus. Uh, and I wanted there to be a big focus because I didn't want the book to be a bummer um, on really concrete examples of what the alternative is. So, so Nah presents one of these alternatives. So when I met Nah, he was 98. And his story is this: In the, he came to the United States from the former USSR. Uh, He came. He was already in retirement. This was like in the uh, early '80s, and um, he lived in this big old age home that was like kind of a low-income housing for seniors that ended up being mostly Russian. Uh, Russian uh, 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 refugees, Russian immigrants Mm. to the United States. And he wasn't particularly politically active. He was just sort of a do-gooder. Like he and his wife in their retirement would drive people to the doctor's appointments or, you know, help people fill out forms. Their English was like a little bit better than other people's, though not great. And then what happened was something got him angry about politics. And that something was very simple. Uh, a lot of people in the U.S. will remember this, that in the 1990s, there was this big welfare reform bill that was passed by President Clinton and the, and the Congress. Mm. And in the initial writing, in the initial law that was passed by Congress and signed by President Clinton, uh, immigrants, including, you know, legal, legitimate immigrants, legal immigrants, um, they were being, even those living in nursing homes would not be able to get like food stamps and other kind of benefits. And so that applied to a lot of people in Knox community. They were all low-income seniors, and they were all going to lose their government benefits. And Knox um, just got pissed off, basically. And he made speeches, and he, he, he went on, and on radio and things like that. But he also, over the period of a year or two, he and his wife helped get – citizenship for 300 of their neighbors. And so what that means and is- this they, is
1: hard, right? I mean, I've, I've helped people with this, uh, the US citizenship test. It is a really tough test.
0: That's right. You have to like learn, you know, about the you know the Federalist Papers, Declaration of Independence, mm. stuff like that. These people are seniors. You know, a, a lot of them. A, these were a lot of these were Jewish uh, refugees whose first language was Yiddish, but they have to take it in Russian. And the, you know, the, and the whole thing is so. But he and his wife they they organize like a committee, and they t- they they go through the test. And and basically, in the period of time when the the government was going back and forth about whether they were going to amend this law or not, they got all these neighbors. Citizenship. Okay, so then the law was actually amended, so it didn't actually happen. But in the meantime, Nah really went to Bat for his community, and he's always been going to Bat for his community through like you know the the like little neighborly favors. But now he got them organized as citizens, and then into politics. And so basically, what happened is after that, this is sort of like in the late '90s, early 2000s. He formed a committee, again, of people he called his lieutenants, which were all just old, <laughs> retired Russian refugees. And uh, and they would make a slate of candidates who their communities should support, and um, they would get the vote out. And lo and behold, like within a couple elections, like this precinct that was in this just this old age home had two or three times the voting turnout of all the precincts around it. And basically everyone voted the same way. Um, which actually triggered an investigation at one point by the u s attorneys by the by the you know the uh, by the justice department. like how is it possible that this uh, precinct you know is there any manipulation going on or fraud? and it turns out like actually just by being a good person and dedicating your time to mobilizing your neighbors uh, you can you can get a lot of uh, of support and the last thing I say about this is it really translated into power so when Nah and his community had questions about like small things like getting their sidewalk shoveled or big things like immigration, politicians, you know, um, politicians responded to them. They, you know, he would get letters and visits and calls from the governor and the mayor because it's such a rare thing for someone to have this, uh, th- this kind of concentration of, of energy and support uh, of people who he's built rapport for. Um, I have to say that uh, right after I finished writing the book, uh I actually had a copy in my hand but it hadn't been published yet. Uh this man, not Nah, he passed away. Uh just three uh. days shy of his three days shy of his ninety-ninth birthday. Wow. And so I went to his funeral and, you know, when someone who's ninety nine dies, there's usually not that many people left among their, you know, friends and family. And and there were about fifty people there from the from the Russian community where he lived. But then sitting in the front row at this funeral home was uh, the mayor of Boston and the governor of Massachusetts and city councilors and state representatives. And they weren't there to like get any votes or take any pictures. They were like just quietly paying tribute to this guy who who did something that what I want people to see is that he did something that's like powerful and amazing, but also like very tangible, like a lot of people right now um, who are spending two hours a day on politics could do what he did. He didn't even start until he was retired, you know. And um, and so it's it's so concrete, but I, um, but I think so so meaningful.
1: Wow, you must be there. Must be a sense of um, satisfaction at having captured his uh, achievements and his story so beautifully in your book uh, at that moment.
0: For sure, and also just the transformation in my own mind because. I went through this weird my the initial things I heard about this guy was that he controlled a thousand votes and that he um had been under investigation by you know the justice department uh and I thought he I thought it was scary like I, I didn't know what this was all about like it just sounded like uh like is this a is this a good form of politics or and and I think a lot of people when they initially read this story have this going and they kind of go back and forth about this too And I think what we realize by the hopefully by the end of the book is that actually this isn't a dirty form of politics or a parochial form of politics. This is politics. That's what politics is. And and actually the above the fray kind of way that most of us participate in politics is not politics at all. It's something closer to sports fandom.
1: Your book is coming out at a time when various others are documenting this interesting shift in the United States away from the local towards the national, as Dan Hopkins' book, The Increasingly United States, is showing some evidence of this. Uh, and staying with Massachusetts, you have a splendid example of uh, the Obama election in 2008 and the 2010 special Senate election. Uh, talk us through that one.
0: Yeah, so in my home state here in Massachusetts, um, we had, of course, very high turnout back in 2008 when Obama was on the ballot. The economy was in collapse. Uh, Democrats, and this is a very Democratic state for, for listeners who don't right know, a very Democratic state. Um, and so, you know, turnout was really high and people were energized about the Obama election, even though it wasn't close in this state. And of course, in the U.S. system with the Electoral College, um, all that matters is the state who wins the state. And so if someone wins the state by thirty points, that's a real landslide. Okay, but the people of Massachusetts were all were all excited. Even though their votes like didn't you know it wasn't that important because it was such a landslide. All right. Then a few months later, Massachusetts becomes a really important scene in national politics. And the reason is there's a special Senate election to fill the seat that was long held by Ted Kennedy, our our long term senator who died in office. And now um the He took turned, office.
1: Like, I learned learned from your book uh, in 1962 when he uh, he took, took up his bro- uh, brother's seat uh, uh, as as his uh, his brother became president. It's pretty extraordinary.
0: He has a long career. Absolutely. Uh, uh, so so then in 20 now it's you know now Obama had been in office and now there's it's a very important election nationally because the Democrats controlled 60 votes in the Senate, which is very important in the United States Senate because that means that they are uh, they they can. They can override a filibuster and, um, and, um, and there's a competition because the Democrats not that exciting and there's a, the winds at the back of the Republicans, there's the Tea Party movement that came up in response to Obama and all of a sudden the energy is on the right. So all of those people who were super jazzed about Obama, who donated, who went uh, canvassing, they sit back they they don't go to town hall meetings they don't vote and in this special election when Massachusetts actually mattered you have this steep decline in turnout especially among democrat in democratic areas and this of course is the election where Massachusetts could play a real a real role and so what's the story there i mean i think the story is that when you're doing politics that's tied to the kind of the fun of it the the national drama uh, celebrity candidates um the ups and downs of of national elections, then when your candidate's not an exciting celebrity, you sit at home uh, because it's not. it's just not fun. And I think that's really the story of what happened during the Obama years. You know, when he was on the ballot, a lot of people voted. When he wasn't, even though, of course, for the Democrats, you know, his legislative agenda required just that, a legislature that uh, Mm. supported what he wanted, you know, people just sat home because, you know, again, their celebrity wasn't on the ballot. And of course, in 2016, when we have the biggest celebrity of all on the ballot on the Republican side, um, uh, you know, the stadiums are filled, uh, lock her up, uh, you you know, and the Democrats, um, in, in many cases, just can't be bothered.
1: And you also talk about the way in which uh, local activism isn't just something progressives do. And, and you point out uh, that the Right to Life movement, uh, the movement for gun rights in the U.S. Uh, through the NRA were, were chapter-based local organisations. Uh, and you have a really nice riff on the, uh, the way in which these organisations provide services to their members, such as uh, gun safety classes for kids provided by the NRA. Uh, or, in the most striking example, the work that the KKK is doing with opioid addicts. Uh, talk, talk us a little through through some of those issues.
0: Um, where the KKK was going around offering opioid addicts help. Like, you know, do you have an addiction? It's not your fault. We're here to help you. And this is something that all... Um, that you know, like like you mentioned, you know the the NRA does, uh, you know churches do provide services um, and mm. build support. It's not like uh, the KK just goes around and says, you know, we're white supremacists, come join us. They don't. They wouldn't get as many supporters as if they said, hey, um, let me look you in the eye and think about what you where you're coming from and are you going through something bad and we can help you. And you know, obviously, the the, the message of the book, just like Nach does a version of this for his community, is that this is how you count votes and and build support and i think i think that people on the left sometimes think that they are the they are the realm of grassroots organizing like they're they're good at this and you know maybe if you have a strong uh, labor movement you can think that or or maybe if you have memories of you know the civil rights movement in the us you can think that but i think time and again we see that the right is actually much more committed to a bottom-up grassroots uh, form of politics. You know, I sometimes pose to audiences this question um, of whether they'd be willing to either donate to or work for uh, a 25-year-old kid fresh out of law school who's running for county judge with the idea that maybe in 30 years that person might be a nominee for the Supreme Court. And if your like initial response to that is like county judge, that sounds like lame and parochial, as opposed to like no, I'm 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 in it for a thirty year plan, then like you're doing it wrong, right? <laughs> and we see this like we see this in the juxtaposition on the donor side. So for example, the Koch brothers. In the United States, which are big kind of conservative investors in politics, they do this. They invest in county judges and state legislators, races and building this farm team. And they spend a lot of money on it. Meanwhile, we can see on the left, like what just happened in the Democratic election, where someone like Mike Bloomberg will spend a billion dollars or something like that in a, you know, a 12 week effort completely focused on himself like that's that kind of epitomizes the difference between the left and the right in terms of funding for grassroots.
1: And I I didn't find your KKK example uh, off the wall, uh, I guess, because I'm familiar with Eli Berman's book, uh, Radical, Religious and Violent, uh, which is about the way in which terrorist movements often use these uh, grassroots services. And and he talks about uh, Hamas providing uh, garbage services as a way of building local support. So I think this is a a pretty familiar organising strategy uh, among groups which are sometimes seen as being beyond the political uh, pale uh, to, to bring themselves into the mainstream uh but one of the right, but you know it's not it's not dirty right i mean like every mainstream
0: church does the same thing to, mm. you know you provide free babysitting and get people in the door because you want people in the door and you know you know if they have young kids they'll respond to free babysitting it's not like it's, you know it's not like a
1: big secret absolutely uh one of the t- stories i loved was of uh, lisa mann and and her work in staten island uh, tell us about lisa and and what she does
0: Sure. So Lisa is a liberal, uh, in a, in a, from a well-to-do neighborhood of Brooklyn, which is a, a, a very democratic area of New York City, and um, she works with this as a volunteer for this organization that sends people with a bunch of training. They train these volunteers and they send them to the doors of people who are they're going to disagree with. So like Lisa will go over to Staten Island, which is a conservative and more blue-collar area of New York. It's the only area of New York that voted for President Trump. Uh, It had, up until 2018, a Republican member of Congress. So Lisa would go over to Staten Island and knock on the doors of people who she expected to be Republicans and Trump supporters. And um, she tried to engage them in these lengthy conversations. This strategy that she used was called uh, deep canvassing. And the idea is, for her with a very kind of open heart and with a lot of eye contact and with a lot of listening to, and, and with a real lack of judgment, to explain it in a real deep way to this voter where she's coming from in politics and to invite that voter to share with her where he or she is coming from. Like, what, here are the values that I have, here are the people whom I love, who, who make me feel like I should vote this way. Now tell me about you. And this is a very disarming strategy because what happens is most of the time, the person that Lisa's talking to at the door is not like a a Fox news junkie and she's an MSNBC junkie and they're talking like, you know, the talking points they're regurgitating from cable news. That's not what this is. Most of the time, she's actually encountering someone who is, yes, conservative, voted for Trump, but, you know, maybe didn't think that deeply about it and maybe has some reservations about it. And, and when someone comes to their door and treats them with dignity and respect and, and offers to a listening ear, some of those people really open up. And even change their mind. And so this strategy, which has been studied through a bunch of experiments, has been shown to be very successful and durable. That is like, you know, um, you have a conversation at the door and it's not like the person just, you know, fills out a survey and says, I'm convinced, you know, but then two seconds later, they're not like, this is something that has a long lasting effect on people. And I'll say that it can feel, and maybe like, if you're just listening to this, it just, you know, it feels like, Wow. It's a slog, right? Because these conversations are sometimes 30 and 45 minute conversations. And how many could you actually have? And indeed, sometimes Lisa goes, could spend a whole day. The other volunteers, too. And they have maybe like one or two of these like deep conversations. And some people could look at that and be like, oh, my God, I spent the whole day. And what I had like one great conversation. What a waste. And um, but that's not how Lisa thinks about it, because she and all of the organizers, all the volunteers in my book, they they think about it so differently. They just think, OK, I started the day with one vote, which is my own. And now I have multiplied that vote. I have multiplied it by two. Right. I have now I have twice the voting power I had before because I might have convinced one person. Um, and so I, I think that's a very uh, for me, inspiring way to think about politics and, and also, also inspiring to think about going to these doors of people who, sh- you know, at first Lisa was nervous, really nervous to talk to, you know, um, and and actually engages in these, like, really nice and kind conversations. Uh,
1: on the, the topic of deep canvassing, uh, you quote Dave Fleischer, who's a community organizer in his 60s, who says that deep canvassing is about love. Uh, it's about connecting our love of family and friends to, to policies we think support those that we love. There's a lot of vulnerability involved in deep canvassing, isn't there, compared to just turning up with a script that's been given to you that that everybody else is reading out.
0: That's right. Yeah, you have to talk, talk personally about why you, you have to be a real person. You know, Dave says... Um, talk to someone who's a a little less like a stranger and more like a friend Mm. and you know I was interesting I was recently talking to a bunch of um uh church organizers about the book and this came up this like question about vulnerability because you know all the time um if you want to build community you kind of have to put yourself out there say like hey um I'd like to organize uh you know it could be like a you know a soccer game or something like that. And you kind of have to hope like, oh, is anyone going to come with me on this thing or like, is it, you know? And, and so I think when any, anytime you're building community at all, you, even when it's not like showing your deep feelings about, you know, uh, reproductive rights or gay marriage or something like that, you're kind of putting yourself out there and in canvassing, which is like not talking to your friends, but talking to strangers, um, uh, all the more so. And yeah, that's right. I mean, that's what Dave did and Lisa does. And, and all of these people who are actually doing politics as opposed to watching it from the couch, they, uh, they're putting themselves out there.
1: It's almost like deep canvassing is the opposite of online micro-targeting, which was the topic of your first book.
0: Right, I mean, it's this, okay. I There's mean, no, the vulnerability, right, no that,
1: vulnerability involved in, uh, in running a computer model to do uh, micro-targeting with a massive database.
0: Right. Well, there's no feedback. I mean, except through experiments. Right. So the, the thing about micro is that, you know, you're trying to use all the information you can to try to understand what's going to make a voter tick. And in some ways, that's what you're doing in deep canvassing, too. But, um, The online targeting doesn't have the same feedback. What feedback do you get? Well, if someone clicked on something, you know, they clicked on it. If someone donated, you know, they donated. But, um, you know, in real in a 30 minute conversation, that eye contact and that feedback that you get from the person's facial expressions and all that like is so much more powerful.
1: So why do people reject this uh, this notion of uh, of activism? Uh, why is uh, the, uh, the the work of uh, uh, folks like Nark and uh, uh, Lisa seen as as not worth doing?
0: So there's a few. I mean, there's so many reasons. One reason is just time frame. Like a lot of people, they can't get themselves to invest in a long term plan. They say, you know, all I care about is getting Trump not elected and how can my two, you know, me getting two voters on my side matter? I don't have the 10 years that NAAC took to get a whole community organized or, you know, climate change is uh, is important right now. If we don't act right now, um, you know, we're we're toast. And um, I would say that all of the organizers, even the ones who, of course, feel the immediacy of of all of these problems, they just know that they have no alternative right like they're they they have a job to do, and that job is building support for the things they care about and um, it doesn't help at all for them to like follow the the details of uh international climate change proposals that are never going to happen, like when they could actually get people on their side in their communities and so again, I think you see that uh, difference in investment between the left and the right. So that's why, you know, that, that that's more short termism that I think is more common on the left. That's focused on just kind of one crisis to the next. Um, and, uh, and, and so there's that, I, I think there's also, I mean, there's not, I think I know <laughs> in the book, there's this argument about, about stakes. So, um, one reason you do politics as a hobbyist is because as much as you say you, you know, you really care about what's going on and you're really afraid about what's going on. You don't act like it. So, you know, in the demographic analysis, you see that the people who, that, you know, like men, white men, college educated white men spend the most amount of time on hobbyism. Whereas women are much more likely to be engaged in real volunteerism. Um, Uh, whites spend a lot more time in America on kind of frivolous politics, following learning facts and stuff like that. But African-Americans and Latinos spend a lot, a greater percentage of their time in volunteerism. And I think you look at those numbers and the the theory that I think almost anyone arrive at is that if you really feel the immediate stakes of political consequences, you know, you, you, politics can't possibly be a leisure activity. You have to you have to build power. You have to, you have to try to make some headway, um, and so I think that there's a big part of the story, which is if you're satisfied with the status quo, even if you don't say it, but if you kind of are, then you're more likely to treat politics in this in this way. Uh,
1: so there is the question as to whether uh, hobbyism might be a, a gateway through to activism. Um, you've argued that it tends to be a substitute for activism, and uh, there's intuitively makes some sense there's only 24 hours in the day now but I want to push you a little bit on that point there's a study by a couple of UC Riverside researchers that find that people who are active online two years ago are more likely to be active offline today Um, There's a Michigan State University study using random assignment that finds that um, people who sign an online petition are then more likely to donate. Um, What's your view of some of that research that suggests that perhaps um, hobbyism could be a a complement to activism or a gateway into activism?
0: Yeah, I mean, the main argument for why that's not true is that most people are completely learning the wrong facts and practicing the wrong skills. That would lead them from one realm to the other realm, right? So they're learning all sorts of junk about, you know, national political drama. Um, but they're not following the news about, like, how they could be involved. In fact, if you ask someone who spends two hours a day following the news, like, how—tell me, you know, news junkie friend, like, how can I get involved um, on climate change stuff, you know, in my community, and my state— they just kind of blush and say like, oh, I actually don't follow any of the news that could inform you of that. <laughs> I could, But I could tell you a lot about like the Mueller report or, you know, some some nonsense from the, the Trump saga. Um, so they're learning the wrong facts and they're also practicing the wrong skills. Right. So, I mean, I, I think that as we've been talking about the skills to actually get political power, right, which is not a Shouldn't be a shouldn't be a dirty word. All that means is the ability to get other people to take some actions that they wouldn't otherwise take, like the ability to get your neighbor to vote in a way that they wouldn't otherwise vote or a politician to vote on a bill in a way they wouldn't otherwise vote. That requires um, the skills of patience and discipline and and empathy and all that. And like for most people, I think engaging in politics online, liking and sharing and retweeting and all that, uh, they're practicing a politics of, of real like outrage and provocation and 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 instant gratification. So I don't I don't think they're 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 likely to, to lead into that. And look, of course, I think that uh, I think actually the research on this selectivism stuff is is pretty weak, um, and it's weak for a particular reason. It's really hard to simulate um, like one person in a, in a, you know, in a, in a research uh, environment somehow transitioning from one to the other. But the way I think about it in the book is I, I kind of put it to the reader. I mean, we here here is what we see. We see like 80% plus of the people who are engaging all the time in political consumption are doing absolutely nothing in their communities. Right. Most people who are spending, who are daily news consumers in the United States, belong to zero organizations, have attended zero meetings in their community, have worked zero times in the last year to solve a community problem. And so, yeah, maybe at the margins that it's possible a few of these people are picked off and, and join the realm of the of real political uh, engagement. But I want the reader to think about for themselves, like, are they making that transition or not? Um, And, you know, could they reorient their news or their behavior to to maybe to make this shift?
1: Yeah, I've argued in the past that we need more of a politics of love on the progressive side of politics. So it does uh, intuitively appeal to me that uh, uh, rapid consumption of the politics of hate is unlikely to, uh, to, to lead to the rise of a, of a politics of love or, or even um, acceptance of people with different views. Um, I do like your, your idea that uh, uh, you know you're doing something useful uh, if people would notice when you stop doing it, and that's probably not true if all you're doing is, uh, is writing screeds, uh, partisan screeds on Facebook.
0: That's right. No one misses you when you stop uh, stop making your hot takes. Uh,
1: so, uh, in terms of the the institutions behind the rise of hobbyism, um, you've talked about um, the outrage industry on on cable TV, uh, uh, and uh, and also the the role of political parties uh, getting. Stepping away a little from some of their local organisations, perhaps because the sort of um, party bosses, the uh, Tammany halls and Daily Machines, got a bit of a bad name for uh, for the national brand. Uh, are these what you see as the main factors that have led to a rise in hobbyist politics?
0: Yeah, so I put them. up. I generally, you know, think about three three causes. Right, one is this. Technology, Which is not just cable news. It's really just shifting to all, all shifting all of our leisure activity to screens and to, uh, sh- to five minute stints. Right. So um, a lot of people, whether their hobby is politics or sports or food or anything like that, they, they are, are kind of toggling back and forth between work and leisure all day long, um, spending five minutes here or there, but never setting aside an hour to 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 do something, and so um, that's enabled us not to have lots of like kind of Twitter back and forths, but not a lot of of community meetings. So there's a technological explanation. The party uh, organization explanation is like exactly like you said. For a number of reasons, we've as a country disempowered local parties. We've been uh, put off by some of the corruption. Uh, and fraud and abuse that local party bosses have engaged in the past. And so we've we've disempowered them, but we've kind of thrown out the good with the bad there. So, um, you know, and I see this in a parallel in, in the religious setting too, right? So some people look at the abuse of, of religious leaders and say, you know, it's just not worth the risk of empowering people as local leaders. I'd rather... I'd rather not have it at all um, than risk it. And other people say, like, look, whenever you have someone in a position of power, it comes with some risks that they'll abuse that power. And um, unfortunately, we have to assume those risks or otherwise we don't have that power for good. And I think, uh, again, in the political sphere, at least in the United States, we've 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 gone the route of saying we'd rather not have local. Power power centers at all in politics and unions and religion, um, and 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 instead you know uh, just have kind of individual relationships to to politics. Um, but I, I I say in the book that I think the the biggest the biggest explanation might be this comfort with the status quo that you see among college educated news followers. And um, mm. you know the the college educated program, the college educated population has just grown. Dramatically over time, uh, from like past after World War II it was like five percent of the population, to about a third of the population in the U.S. today is college educated, and Harvard professor Theda Scotchpole makes this claim that I think seems seems right to me, which is that as that population has grown, people do not feel individually responsible for their communities, like they're stewards of their communities, uh, and so they might be in a social network where they're expected to like know political facts, but they are not in a social network where they're expected to be like in charge of the smooth sailing of their community. Um, and so we have this situation where people who are themselves financially comfortable, they have good jobs, they are not really getting in the trenches of political organizing, but instead they are they are just sort of sitting on the on the hobbyist sidelines.
1: So the first of those factors, uh, technology seems to suggest that uh, the COVID-19 shutdown is going to have uh, a massively adverse impact on uh, activism and uh, possibly cause a big surge in hobbyism. Have you thought about how people can maintain that that sense of um, strong, engaged activism in a world in which we're expected to uh, to, uh, be socially distant from one another?
0: Yeah, so I would say and I, and I would say that like I'm experiencing this in my own life, both in politics and in religion right now, which is that there are ways to be engaged online that are tying you to your own communities where you can have an impact where you know other people. And there are ways to be engaged online where you are engaged in ways that are kind of have are, are embracing shallow connections to people all over the country, all over the world. And in politics, at least in American politics, we have this, you know, strong kind of federalist system. We have states have a lot of power and local municipalities have a lot of power and they have a lot of power over things that people care a lot about you know the environment uh about racial equality uh, which are huge issues on the political left and um, that means that you can build power for those issues that people that you care about by having strong ties to your own community and so i would say that there is an opportunity as there was before we were all stranded in our homes to connect with people in your own community online. Um, and it's, you know, not as good obviously as being face to face, but it's still okay. Uh, but if we just replace any kind of in-person connections we were going to have with, with people scattered all over the world or all over the country, that's really no, that that's really a bad, a bad replacement.
1: Mm. Uh, I'm interested in your, uh, your personal journey over the last few years. Uh, you've uh, grew up in Rhode Island, uh, you spent some time uh, as a fellow of the Democratic Leadership Council, uh, but then you talk in the, uh, the back of the book about uh, how you've come to get active in the Massachusetts Democratic Party and, and indeed uh, push them to engage in, in more of a kind of deep canvassing approach to politics. Tell me about that journey and also tell me a little bit about why you chose to write about that as a, as a political science academic a profession which normally uh, is, is is ruthlessly nonpartisan.
0: Yeah, it's a deeply uncomfortable thing to write about. I mean for one thing you know my just the, 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 this, the short background of my own journey is that um, I've always grown up in lived in democratic areas and I've always considered my politics to be, to be moderate is centrist. Um, I've worked for Republicans. Uh, I worked the, the democratic leadership Council is A sort of a cent It doesn't, uh, you know, it, it was a, a centrist, uh, organization on the democratic side during mostly like the Clinton years. Um, and so my politics have always been centrist and I have, uh, political positions or view positions on policies that are, that are, you know, not comfortable all the time within the democratic party. You know, for example, uh, um, You know when i after i give two lectures in my in my lecture on u.s elections about citizens united uh, which is our big campaign finance uh uh supreme court case in the united states you know i kind of i revealed to the students that i think it was the right decision supportive of that decision was a position that almost no people on the democratic side hold um but nevertheless i think that you know that's that's where i am and on a number of issues i would say I'm, i'm conservative so okay but when I was going to get involved – and I think that, by the way, that kind of moderation has always been in part what's pushed me away from real politics. In fact, it's pushed me toward academia because in academia, you know, it's it's very suited to someone who, you know, thinks politics is really important but doesn't want to be a partisan. Yes. Um, I. I. But, but basically, I, I think that um, – I I kept hearing from people that the reason that they don't participate in politics is because they have the same excuse that I have, which is that, you know, if you're not that ideological, you know, it's kind of uncomfortable to be in a, a local organizing committee of people who are there because they're super ideological. And, you know, it made me realize that, you know, the reason that a lot of local political parties are polarizing and, and extreme is because, well, like, cause people like me, aren't there <laughs> like, because, uh, you know, people who have a, a, a different range of views are, are not, are not well represented. And so, um, uh, but but, but okay, a few things happened when I started writing the book. One is, I realized by interviewing people like Nah and Lisa that I actually felt more connected to what they were doing than what I kind of previously had thought of politics was all about. in other words, these even if they are the people I interviewed had a very wide range of political views. Some were you know far left some were from some were kind of center Nah himself as you know kind of you know had supported the Republican governor of Massachusetts. Um, they, um, but they do politics in this form of service. That's like, they build support for things they care about by making connections, by building rapport, by building trust with their neighbors. And it felt to me a lot more similar to, to sort of community, community service work, religious work, than politics. And it felt, and then that was a more comfortable realm for me. So I I felt like I, I was better suited to it than I originally thought I was, um, And the reason I wrote about this is because, you know, I and so, okay, so in the book, right, I write I write a bit about my own political journey and getting involved in a a, a local Democratic Party committee um, and and. And I do that because I want the reader to know that, like, I come from the world of hobbyists, too. And then I have all the excuses that they have about why not to participate. You know, (laughs) it's I don't have enough time. My views are moderate. Like, you know, maybe I don't have the right disposition for politics. You know, I say the wrong things. I whatever. I have all those same excuses. And I want to show like that uh, I found a lot of meaning in in switching gears and and engaging in that form of politics and real politics and, and and hoping hoping that that would be an invitation for a reader to, to try it too.
1: As a professor, how do you go about teaching this? Uh, are you able to introduce your students to uh, to to activists? Yeah, well, I mean, I've,
0: uh, am I, am I, am I, I'm I'm I don't know if I I don't know if I've like actually uh, introduced them to activists. I've introduced them. I've had them. I've had you know. I've interviewed like policy people and. And um, uh, actually, I had a good friend of mine who was a, a big Trump supporter come talk to my class the day after the Trump election, uh, which was a very interesting experience.
1: But, That's um, a uh, brave decision I, to make in a uh, highly uh, smaller liberal part of the world.
0: Yeah, that was a, it. Was an interesting thing. I mean, I, I had him do it. Right, it, it, he was a friend who was sort of deep into this online. Trump world, you know Alex Jones. What seems to me to be a lot of conspiracy theories. In fact, well, uh, yeah. And he told me throughout the whole twenty sixteen election, you know, Trump's going to win. I said, Oh, okay, okay, okay. And and he said, and I and I said, I said, if he wins, I'm going to interview you in front of my class. And so I kind of had forgotten about that. But then the the night after, you know, the day after the election, he he texts me. He's like, Okay, so when am I talking to your class? And um, and so I arranged it, and it was it was intense. You know, some of the students were, were in tears. Um, this they were, they're nearly all liberal. Uh, this was actually, I was teaching at Yale at the time. And, um, but it was very interesting. He kind of gave his take and and the students listened. And, you know, I think that there is this sense in which both parties can build these, uh, what the sociologist Arlie Hochschild calls empathy walls. Mm. That's like where you really, you know, um, Someone who lives in a in a town that's kind of been in financial ruin due to uh, globalization, um, due to the opioid epidemic. Uh, you know, is that someone in my sphere of empathy uh, or not? And I think for a lot of the students, this was a moment of thinking, like, you know, who, for whom do I have empathy and and who and for whom do I not? Um, and yeah, so it was a it was a powerful movement. Look, with my students, I try to be, I just try to be straightforward about what the evidence in, in the research shows. Um, I went, I used to be in a place like where I would never reveal my own political positions on things, but in some ways I've, I've, I I don't know, I might be, I might be shifting on that front because I, I sometimes find that it's useful to be transparent with the students and say like, here's what I think and here's why I think it. Um, and here's what I think the evidence says, and here's why that evidence leads me to think that. But if I create a warm environment where they can disagree with me um, or read the evidence differently, you know, very little evidence we have in social science is so airtight that, uh, that you know, we should be super convinced of our views. So, so I, it hasn't been a problem so far for me to uh, talk a little bit publicly about some political work that I've done while also you know, maintaining what I think is an appropriate academic stance.
1: Yeah, you. Uh, it sounds as though you're taking deep canvassing and turning into into deep teaching there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Frank McCourt's wonderful book, uh, Teacher Man, where he uh, he talks about teaching high schoolers in New York City uh, and just the value of opening up about his stories, enabling them to open up about their stories and uh, and to become, in their case, great writers. In this instance, my sense is that opening up a little bit about your political journey helps students think more rigorously about their own political journey and and perhaps challenge some of their prejudices. Yeah, and I think that it
0: it also just gets them into the realm of thinking that, the people with whom we disagree like we don't have to hate them mm. you know and what they, they're, they're not crazy you know i i I've, I've, been have, I've been having this interesting back and forth with someone in my community with whom i i think i disagree about some some things related to housing density and, and so forth and and you know I, it's possible that people who are on different sides of this issue or anyone issue can find common ground and find a good compromise and it's also possible that they can't and and so the alternative is like, well, let's see who can get more people in an election, right? Like like if, if I can't convince you, person in the town who disagrees with me, and get on the same page with you, then I, I'm just going to try to get more votes than you. And that's not like a a threat. <laughs> you know, that's not like a, a mean thing to say. That's how democracy is supposed to work. And and I and hopefully, you know, everyone can be on good terms afterwards. You know, I, I think that, again, it's like when you're in especially an online bubble of of partisan animosity, you just get into this space where like people who disagree with you are stupid and evil <laughs> and and, you know, and there's no and, and there's no other alternative.
1: Right. Uh, your uh, next project, I understand, is is thinking about some of these issues from a business perspective, um, and I wonder if you could say a little bit about uh, your critique of uh, Starbucks founder Howard Schultz's uh, short-lived twenty nineteen presidential bid and how Schultz set about uh, a campaign for the presidency.
0: Right. So, for 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 folks who don't know, Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks, briefly toyed with the idea of running as a third party candidate, which in the United States is just like a not a viable, you can't do it. Uh, just, the system doesn't accommodate such a thing, um, although and, and, and then he backed out of it. And, and of course, we've had two other billionaires, Mike Bloomberg and Tom Steyer, run as Democrats and spend, I don't know, collectively, I think they've spent over a billion dollars for sure on their bids. Um, and there was sort of frivolous vanity projects. And I can contrast that with the Starbucks business model which i actually think <laughs> is awesome um because the Starbucks business model has like all of the makings of of good grassroots politics in fact all the grassroots, all like retail success does right so starbucks started with a few stores in one region until it got that model right and then it expanded slowly you know fast for a business but in years over a period of years they expanded to more regions um uh they were really responsive to their customers so at first starbucks was super snobby the baristas wear bow ties they played opera music and the thing and then and, and, you know and howard schultz is like we'll never serve you know skim milk in our stores. And, you know, then, but within a few years, he's like, you know, offering Frappuccinos with, with uh, you know, free internet and, 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 uh, and, and you know, and sort of meeting people where they were trying to retain a, a strong brand in a, and also meeting people where they were. And, and so, um, you know, there's a lot there that speaks to me as what's good in politics too. Right. So one thing is just like meeting people's immediate needs. Like, Uh, you don't, if you want to make money in the business world, like you have to figure out what people want. And that's true in politics too. You know, I think we've seen in American politics, these candidates who, um, spend a lot of time focusing on big national policy ideas, uh, and having plans for everything, um, only to learn that actually like voters aren't responsive to that at all. Uh, and in the Starbucks case, what they're responsive to is like, uh, you know, a reliable, nice atmosphere with free internet and, and, you know, and a, and a free drink coupon if things didn't go right. Um, and I think that the, the political parties can, can benefit from that knowledge too. Uh, and, and also from the slow and steady approach that, you know, you start, you start, you bottom up, not, you don't, you don't, you no, Starbucks wasn't started with a national billion dollar ad campaign. No successful businesses really started that way. And yet these billionaires, when they tried to run for president, they, uh, they took that, that approach.
1: Right. I think about uh, Sebastian Junger's book, Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging, and the way he talks about the importance of building a cadre of, uh, of, of supporters around you at the, the grassroots level and then going from there. Um, let me yeah, f- exactly. finish with a, a handful of, uh, of standard questions they ask everyone, Eitan. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self?
0: Whew. I don't know. I, I that's a good question. Get more ad- activist and that. be less
1: less hobbyist I would have thought. But here I am trying to answer the questions as well as ask them.
0: Yeah, I mean I would say that I like I I didn't, I guess I never really had I, I didn't really particularly have strong political aspirations, but if I were to have them, I would um focus on yeah, going slow and steady and and um and building relationships, you know, I think there's a lot of I see this on my students. So I don't know about my own advice to myself, but I give a lot of advice to students uh, who a lot of whom want to be politicians or be involved in politics. And a lot of times their first intuition is to like move to Washington and work in a think tank after college, which is what I did. And I, I, I actually think that maybe the right thing is for them to go home, you know, go to where they came from. And start building up the the political community that they're that they're eager to to see.
1: Right, Bill Clinton uh, graduating from Yale and going straight back to Arkansas politics. Uh, yeah, what's something you used to believe but no longer do?
0: Oh my God, you're putting me on the spot for this. Uh, <laughs> what did I used to believe that I don't anymore? I have no idea. I <laughs> I would say. I would say that one thing that political science – I think political science research um, tends to make people more conservative actually in the sense that – You look at any time there's a big policy intervention, there's like a million things that go wrong, all sorts of unintended consequences. You know, uh, there's pretty good research to suggest as American politics has opened up the voting system. We have now a lot, uh, you know, 30 days in some places of early voting, extended polling hours, uh, no registration deadlines. And um, and all that has amounted to basically no increase in participation. Mm. And Um, it turned out that a lot of the reasons that people are not voting had nothing to do with the logistical burdens that we thought. And I think in one actually policy area after the other, uh, we see this, that a lot of the limitations in American politics of people getting what they want are not structural, um, but are behavioral. And I think there are a lot of people out there. And I think I was one of these people, um, for a long time that was very eager to like always learn what the next big reform idea is so like right now in American politics it's like rank choice voting Um, and you know I guess I now think that I don't think politics would change much about any of this stuff even if we took Australia's lesson and did universal turnout you know I just don't think I don't think a lot of a lot of things are going to change without a a real behavioral organizational shift and people taking their roles as citizens more seriously.
1: Right. I mean, we can compulsory voting, preferential voting, I'd all make a case for, but, but I understand where you're coming from and talking about this as, as also an issue of, of civic culture, the sort of de Tocqueville notions that it's, it's about the grassroots vibe rather than the top-down institutions. Um.
0: Right. And we see with the coronavirus, you know, people are willing to make great sacrifices and change their behaviors dramatically in the face of a really scary virus. Um, But when it comes to things that are less immediate, even if they are really important and even if in the long run more deadly, uh, it's hard for people to get off the couch.
1: You're a uh, successful associate professor. Uh, you've uh, you've got thre- three kids. Uh, you're uh, you've just published a uh, book, which seems to be doing wonderfully well. Uh, when when are you most happy, Eitan?
0: When am I most happy? Well, I'll say right now. I've I've um, my book tour has been basically cancelled because of coronavirus, of course, and. We are, I'm talking to you right now from a, a pretty remote island uh, in Massachusetts, um, where, which is about, it's an 11-mile barrier island that's almost all just kind of uh, grasslands and marsh and dunes. And every morning, of course, I have three little kids and there's, you know, there's no school, especially for the younger, the ones who are not school age yet. So every morning, I now take my four-year-old on a hike through these salt marshes. And I would say, like, it's, it's, I, I feel a little uncomfortable saying this because like, there's a lot of horrible things going on in the world right now, and we're really lucky to be able to be on this deserted island, but walking through salt marshes with a four-year-old every morning is like, a, a pretty wonderful blessing.
1: I've, uh, I've spent a weekend on, uh, on those barrier islands. They're, uh, it's a pretty special part of the world. Um, what's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy?
0: Uh, I, keep the, I keep the Jewish Sabbath, so every Friday night to Saturday we uh, turn down all of our computers and phones and uh, we don't use our car, we don't shop, and we are kind of just with our family and community in our neighborhood, and uh, I, I, uh, I don't know what I would do without that.
1: And finally, Itan, uh, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life?
0: well i would say that um i would say that first of all you know i think that religious texts have been a big shape in my life and and having a, a routine around around um uh a religious calendar and and customs and traditions uh, have have you know shaped my life dramatically? I can't imagine what my life would be without it. And of course, I can also point to like members of my family, a, a grandfather who, who, still alive. He's ninety six now. He, um, and he, someone you know, who a lot of people have someone like him in your life who've had this balance just right of working and committing to a community and engaging in community organizations and having fun and getting the balance just right. And, and uh, you know, I can only hope I can, I can get the balance between family, work, community, uh, uh, country just right.
1: Etan Hirsch, thanks for appearing on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you for having me. There was Etan Hirsch, his new book is Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action and Make Real Change. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.